Imagine a sheet metal prototype shop that was so fast and reliable, it never turned down a job if it were physically possible to complete and the customer was willing to pay the price. My guest today, Jay Jacobs, built his former company Rapid from a team of five to over 300. Before being acquired by a publicly traded company for a price he couldn't refuse, Rapid was manufacturing over 30,000 unique part numbers annually. 24-7, 365 days a year. Then Jay co-founded Paperless Parts, a cloud-based estimating and quoting software platform. On today's show, Jay is going to tell us how he scaled his company and how a job shop can make bold delivery promises like Domino's Pizza. Disclaimer, I didn't say the parts tasted good. This is Swarfcast the podcast for professionals in precision machining. I'm your host, Noah Graff. As listeners of this podcast know, my family company, Graff Pinkert, has been buying and selling used machine tools all over the world for the last 80 years. Every day while selling machinery, we talk to owners of machining companies who tell us they want to expand their business through acquisition. We also encounter a lot of owners of companies who are ready to exit, but don't have successors. This inspired us to start a new business service, Graph Pinkert Acquisitions and Sales, in which we serve as consultants for precision machining companies who want to buy or sell their businesses. There are a lot of business brokers out there who can list your company, but for the most part, those people are generalists. They may not have even heard of precision machining. Another unique thing about working with Graf Pinkert is that we often have a personal relationship with both the potential buyer and seller, putting us in a rare position to evaluate if the two parties are a good fit for each other. Go to grafpinkert.com to contact us for a consultation to see if your sales or acquisitions needs are a good fit for our services. Mention this podcast and we will give you a free tabletop valuation of your company's equipment. Click on the link in the show notes. I am very honored to have Jay Jacobs, parallel entrepreneur, co-founder, and chairman of Paperless Parts, and host of the Job Shop Show podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Noah. Great to be here. Well, this is so much fun because I was just on Jay's podcast, which is going to come out relatively soon, I think. And he is exactly in our same realm of uh, machining. He has a also a background in 3D printing, and we're going to get his story. And also, I, I think one topic I really want to cover today is, is pricing, because this is something I'm hearing about all the time. Um, but first, let's give people some context about where you're coming from. I know that you had great success with a company called Rapid that you started from the ground up. Uh, let's tell people who you are and then we'll we'll work into some other stuff. Thank you, Noah. It's an honor to be on your podcast and appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and hopefully elicit some information, some content that will be of value to your listeners. I think I have a pretty unique perspective in the parts making world. I am a degreed mechanical engineer and I've never practiced. I went into sales and have done sales and marketing and business owner from pretty much my own 
whole career. Uh, I started out in the OEM manufacturing environment, spherical bearings. I then worked for the job shop, the prototype shop. And back in 1989 at the shop, I bought my first 3D printer. So I've been involved with 3D printing since 34, almost 35 years now. How long have 3D printers even been around? That was the second year that they were available. It was an SLA 250 from 3D Systems. And I think we were the 10th job shop in the country to have a 3D printer or stereolithography system, as they were known back then. I switched gears and sold CAD CAM software for three years. And I sold to product designers. My forte, though, was selling to shops. And I sold CAD Key. I sold SurfCam, and I sold a package that's no longer around called Euclid. I really clicked with the sheet metal shops, and in the Boston area, pretty much every shop when I got done had Tadkey in there and quite a few machine shops. I went out and worked for a company making products, so I was actually buying parts for a while. And then I went to a startup called back in 1996, a stereolithography service bureau. And we had two of the big stereolithography machines. These were the production machines back in the day, production prototypes. What are those? I, I, I'm not that familiar with them. That's when you use the um, liquid and it's cured by UV light. And the materials have gotten so much better over the years. Back in 1989, it was an acrylic. And if you looked at it wrong, the parts broke. I think of super glue being layered up. 96, it was a lot more durable. We used it to create prototypes. We used it to create molds and patterns for metal casting in a variety of ways, urethane castings and plastic. What industries was this going into? Anybody making parts, anybody using metal castings, using plastic parts, injection molded parts, when you needed to get one, then maybe a dozen or so to take to a show. We worked with product developers before they went to production. Okay. And went out on my own in 99 and became a manufacturer's rep. Pretty much had been focused on plastics before, and I switched to more of the metals and selling metal castings selling machine parts, selling sheet metal parts, really big springs. And what I discovered was that you could not use 3D printing to rapidly turn around a sheet metal part. And the product developers told me the longest lead time item for prototypes was sheet metal parts. I think I'm sort of a naturally born entrepreneur and I wrote business plan and raised some money from family and friends and pretty much my life savings. Found a really, really small shop and started rapid sheet metal three days after September 11th in 2001. So you found a, sh you did you say you found a shop or you founded a shop? I bought a very small shop that had about, you bought it. Yeah. $150,000 in revenue. The owner was retiring for health issues, came with two people. Uh, and the office manager had been contract, so she left. And the idea there, which was pretty radical back in 2001, was that we would use your 3D CAD data. You had to give us 3D CAD data to make your parts. If you gave us a print, it wasn't good enough. And this was really unusual. 
we were using SolidWorks to unfold the heat metal part into a flat pattern, and that's why we needed it. The other things that we did that were outside the norm at the time for the sheet metal industry is we said we'd turn around your quote in 24 hours and make your parts in one to two weeks. And typically, and that's why you needed people to make it ahead of time for you or do the CAD ahead of time rather than just send you the, the print. Yeah, because the machinery even back then really was driven from 3D CAD data, or at least a DXF that was easier to get from 3D CAD data. So if we didn't get it, we would have to recreate it. That took time the possibility of errors in transposing the information. That's really interesting that everybody was expected to just go from the print and you were basically outsourcing that. And and that that was, I mean, to me, it makes sense. But at the same time, it seems like you're making a little harder for the customer. But But that created really good turnaround time then. That was the secret? That was the secret because the other sheet metal shops didn't want the 3D CAD data. And they were quoting one to, it took them one to two weeks to get a quote. And then it might be four to six weeks or longer to get prototype parts. And that's if you were pushing them and pleading and all those sort of things. So the market was maybe small, but we were obviously a pretty small shop. And there were people who found us on the web and we used the Google AdWords. Those were relatively new back then. And the our first two years were really tough. We were in that manufacturing recession. And I remember September 2003, it was like somebody flipped a switch and all of a sudden business started happening the way I had always anticipated it. And that's when we started growing. Yeah. The other thing that was different way back in the beginning is we said we would be happy to make quantity one. And other sheet metal shops absolutely hated doing that. And we were told there's no way that there's enough business doing quantity one to be viable. And we were laughed at. People using machining, were they doing quantities of one back then? The way that you got a prototype was pretty much you went to your production supplier and either twisted their arm or begged them. And the production shops would somehow squeeze it in for you when it worked for them. Mm-hmm. That was the business model. So that's probably partly just because 3D printers, not as many people had 3D printers. Well, 3D printers cannot even today make sheet metal parts. The characteristics of sheet metal is such that the metal from an additive standpoint will not act like a sheet metal will. Plus the parts tend to be larger, which isn't really cost effective for sheet metal. And what we ended up doing over the years is automating the process so much, which other shops have now duplicated, that you can turn sheet metal parts around using conventional technology very, very quickly and at a pretty inexpensive cost relative to even if the materials work for 3D printing. So stampings and sheet metal fabrication, I don't see on the horizon to be done in any way by 3D printing. I took more of the methodology of the still lithography service view or of the 3D printing and the mindset of that the customers want quantity one, they want it fast, and price a lot of times isn't an objective. For those who aren't seeing the video, you have a plaque behind you that says, be lazy on it. You seem <laughs> like the opposite of lazy. What's the story behind that? It's a reminder that slow down and enjoy the ride. It's okay to be lazy. (laughs) 
Well, like, you told me when we when we prepared, and you know, people know often we do preps for these, and you mentioned to me that the people who are the best people for coming up with processes are lazy people. Yes. I thought that was a hearkening back to that. What explain what you what you meant by that? Well, it's not my my idea. It's however, what it means is the lazy person is going to figure out the most efficient and fastest way to get something done so they can get back to being lazy. As long as they're not a corner cutter who Yes. You know. Yes. I thought it was a really really profound thing. Okay. And then you built this from five employees to 325 employees. Tell me a little bit about the scaling process. There's some critical points in the story. The first critical point was that I had to make a decision to delegate and let go of things. And I remember exactly when it really crystallized for me. And starting in the beginning, I was putting out most of the quotes. And in my mind, I put out these perfect quotes that anticipated everything the customer could think of. They were awesome. And as time went on, we had more and more inquiries because that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to be successful, wanted to grow. And the quoting volume got to be too much for me. So I, as a first step, had someone else in the engineering office help me set up quotes. Then even that got too much. So I said to them, please prepare these simple quotes. And I went teach them and critique them. And there was always something that wasn't in the quote to make it a, in Gray's mind, the perfect quote. And volume kept increasing. We we were growing, you know, sometimes 50% a year. And you were yeah. worried about the quality now because yeah. you were going so fast and you weren't able to oversee things. What our promise to our customers was we would get the quotes out in 24 hours or less. And there were times I literally would young family. I would go home, have dinner, put the kids in bed, and then I'd go back to the shop and quote till midnight because I knew that if I didn't get those quotes out, that they would be there the next day and we weren't going to live up to that promise of getting the quotes out in 24 hours and the whole business model would blow up. And so you were like the the Domino's pizza fabricating and you had to like live live up to that. Yeah. 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 You don't want your pizza four hours later. Well, no, I mean, but they promised you yeah. got the free pizza if you didn't get it on time. So well, we, weren't, we weren't giving the stuff away for free, but yeah. So but the point came, I said, you know what? We can't do this alone. I have to make a decision. We can essentially stay at the same revenue level and they can put out these perfect quotes or I can bring other people in. And as long as we are getting orders from customers and they are happy with the quotes that are coming out from other people. Then I have to, I remember literally thinking, I got to turn my head. I can't look at how the sausage is made. As long as we're getting the business in, then I can focus on the things that other people can't do. And I feel the same way, like with this podcast post-production, I have, I have an editor for it. I feel like the show notes drives me crazy. I keep trying to figure out how to automate, outsource, you know, and I, do you think ego is part of the problem? Do you think, I don't know, it's, I mean, it just seems like a very psychological thing. Um, part, part of it is, and part of it is, it's just hard to find somebody that's, that's good, right? Well, what I learned over time is that things that I thought I was good at, I was only okay at, 
And uh, there were other people out there who were better at it than me. And then let's say that I wouldn't say anybody on my team was lazy, but they, the growth was relentless and they had to figure out ways to automate it better. And they came up with solutions that I never would have dreamed of. Their creativity, because they were involved in the process, was unleashed. And But that was a critical moment where I had to let go and delegate and learn to delegate. Once I made that decision that I would delegate, that was very freeing. And then it's sort of funny, as, a, as time went on, we, we kept growing and we had to hire more people. And I learned that one of the reasons, and this wasn't conscious in the beginning, but one of the reasons really like growing and growing fast was and then I could hire more people so I could push off to them the things that I didn't really enjoy as much and I could narrowing the focus on the things that I really liked. So that was a, a huge side benefit of growing, at least in my mind. That's really interesting. I mean, part of the letting go problem that there were a few things that you really liked doing and you didn't want to let go of those things. Well I I loved I loved quoting. I always wanted to put out, I think you want to talk about pricing sometime here. I always wanted to put out a price that was the highest price possible that someone would buy the parts for. Then, of course, we would make money. You know, we had a floor that we had to be over. And I, it irked me when I would send out a quote and five minutes later, I'd get a PO went back in. I'd be, yeah, I would ask for more money on that. So you that, needed that, to train the people to try to think like yeah, you. Yeah, we, and, and that gets into part of the growth is I spent a lot of time training people. Uh, and that's what my role evolved into over time. The, I'll talk briefly about culture. And, and my my role was to embed the culture in people. And that involved, even when we were over 300 people, spending a lot of time on the floor in the offices, getting my philosophy and mindsets is into as many people as possible from a firsthand basis rather than being passed on from person to person. And what I learned is that every company has a culture, whether you like it or not. And once you realize that you have a culture, then you can decide whether you like the culture you have. And if you don't, you can be deliberate and change it. And to give you an example, one of the things that I would do, I started early on and then continued all the way through is we had lunch with Jay for new team members. And I would go through, I'd talk about myself, my history, we talk about the company's history and we talk about the core values. And then we would let them ask any questions that they wanted. And this was within a month of them joining the company. And the idea was they heard it directly from me. They knew that they had access to me. When I was walking around on the floor, they comfortable saying hello. And these are part of things that I felt were important for our culture that made rapid who we were over time. And one of the things that I found is we we were actually pretty innovative, which is not super common in manufacturing environment. Because a lot of times people get hit over the head when they make mistakes. And I actually would hit my managers over the head when they yelled it the individual contributors who made mistakes. And that it's, it's not a failure unless you don't learn something. And as long as it's not going to blow up the company, the way that we were able to grow, we, we grew on an average rate of 32% from 2010, 2017, every year. And everybody on the team had to contribute, bring 
the knowledge they had to the table to try to implement it. We did a lot with software. Um, that culture of innovation, if somebody gets yelled at or they're not taken seriously when they have ideas, then they won't bother anymore. Innovation wasn't delegated to a team. It was everyone within the company. And we really tried to promote that. Do you think it's easier to delegate once you get to a certain amount of people than if, say, you have 10 people? Is it harder to, to delegate than if you have 100 people or 50 people? I think it's a learned skill. Maybe some people do it naturally. It wasn't natural for me. I'm not active in paperless parts on a day-to-day basis, so I don't have a team anymore outside of people who work with me in some other aspects. So I have two people now, and I delegate a lot to them, way more probably than I um, did rapping. But do you feel like, I mean, you had a co-founder with Paperless Parts, and I, I don't really know exactly your relationship, but do you feel like Rapid was more your baby? Oh, yeah. Um, and yeah. you came in with Paperless Parts more, I don't know. Well, I'm a business guy now, you know. Like, no, no, no. It's This is a great example. So my co-founder, there, there were five of us originally at Paperless Parts. And Jason Ray is the CEO, and he runs the company. Paperless Parts is his baby. I look at it as my job is to support him. And so if you want to say that I'm delegating that, uh, I, I don't look at it like that. I look at it as it's his baby and being okay with not being involved in all the aspects. That's something that from the beginning, I I was more involved in the beginning. As time went on, Jason has way surpassed my expectations. He's an incredible entrepreneur, founder, team builder. Was that your plan though, when you came in, that you were going to be sort of hands-on at the beginning and then lay, lay off? I I didn't know, and I don't think I don't think anyone knew the, the exact course that it was probably my my hope, and it turned out incredibly well. And again, Jason is is just making such a huge dent in the manufacturing world with what he has done to build a team. Thank you to everybody listening to this. It gives me a real sense of purpose, knowing that people feel they get a lot of value out of the show, enough value at least to take the time to listen. Likely some serendipitous occurrence caused you to discover Swarfcast, and I know it might get tiring with me constantly talking about serendipity, but it's just on my mind a lot lately. You might have saw a promo for the show on social media, or a coworker told you about it. In any case, if you know of somebody out there who would get some value out of the show, I'd like you to return the favor that you received once upon a time and spread the word. That's the only way others are going to find out about it. Back to the episode. Right. You know, working in a very small family business that's, you know, I think over time we probably could have made a lot more money if we had scaled, but scaling in the used machinery business is a lot different than, I mean, I know people will say, oh, you think you're different, you know, like, but, you know, the way a lot of dealers, they scale is by hiring a lot of salespeople and then they work straight on commission and it's more hands-off and 
I don't know. I feel like with my dad, who's the he's the sole owner, he's too fascinated by the actual day to day. I mean, he doesn't. I don't think he loves the, the actual management part. So he wants to be a treasure hunter, and, and I and it's interesting. I see a lot of dealers who they have a bunch of uh, people working for them, yet the owner still wants to dip his or her finger into the treasure hunting. And that may, I don't know if that's for better or worse. You know, I think they probably dip their finger in the most lucrative, the bigger stuff. But I find the concept of scaling and letting go, I find it fascinating. I find it scary. I find it something that I'm not in touch with. At the same time, I love the idea of like letting go and having a team do the stuff that doesn't exhilarate you and then working with the team and then they exhilarate you uh, working together. I'm not saying we don't have a team. We, we do have a, a, a team at Graf Pinkert uh, as far as people in the shop, as far as people in the office. We're not doing a lot of the BS. Um, they're doing a great job doing a lot of details and stuff that I absolutely couldn't do. But as far as selling deals and stuff, like I think it's partly ego. It's partly we're just not interested in delegating. I don't know. And I wonder, is it a different business than yours? Uh, or maybe that's just an excuse and you're letting go to scale. Is, isn't that much different? Though so everybody goes into business. I coach startup entrepreneurs young entrepreneurs. And oh, okay. I think it's important to understand why you're in business. For me, I had so much energy about growing the company, being seeing inefficiencies and making them inefficient and doing something that had never been done before. For yourself, it's what juices you every day, what gets you out of bed and, and what things do you dread and you push off and procrastinate. And there's no right or wrong in terms of staying sort of the, the size that you are doing it the way that you're doing or saying we want to be the biggest machinery dealer in the country or in the world. And that will allow me to focus on the things that I like to do. Everybody's journey is different. Everybody's reasons for doing it. And at the end of the day, where, where do you want to be? Do you want to pass it on to your children as your father and grandfather did? you want to create a legacy in your world that you hope when your business leaves you is still continued? There's so many aspects of it. And it actually gets into something I mentioned to you, the shop operating system, which I created. Yeah, one of the other important things in the growth of Rapid was putting in a structure in place for my team because I hate structure. Yes. And I hate management. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So you hate management too. You like being in the trenches and doing the hands-on. and I liked being at 30,000 feet and then I liked being at five feet. I didn't like being in between. And that's what I consider, I guess, management in many ways. So putting the structure in place that allowed me to pass on in a formal way to my team how we should operate the company and then gave me the freedoms to do what I wanted to do. Yeah, and then have a much more successful company at the same time, too. Well, again, success... Not, not that six, scaling always leads it, yeah, but... But success you know. is... Uh, it's all relative. And revenue and profitability are one metric of success. They shouldn't necessarily be what everybody's striving for. 
there are a lot of other aspects and it might be for somebody who's listening they want to work 30 hours a week they want to coach their children's after school sports activities they want to be around every weekend and never answer an email or they're going to forgo growth maybe even profitability as long as they can make a good living for their family and do the things that they want for their family true but if you were able to then scale it then that might uh there's another guy i love i interviewed him his name is ari mizel you ever heard of him i don't know he, he wrote a book called less doing and i know ari okay so you know i mean i'd say the dream is you scale and then you have time to uh coach well isn't that the that's what gets hard because once you have success scaling when, when do you stop and when do you say all right now i'm going to go from 60 hours a week which is what it took to scale to 30 hours a week that, that's really hard to do and i struggled with it i forced myself and i'm glad i did to get out of work early some afternoons to pick up my kids at school and do things with them you know maybe take them out for ice cream um, right afterwards it still felt uncomfortable felt like i was cheating and I, sh I should be working and everybody at the company is working and that's a mindset and a and over time and particularly now when i look back is i wish i'd done more of that and that if we'd only grown 30 percent a year instead of 32 percent a year things still would have been pretty good and i i could have been satisfied but well, I, my question is my question is could you have you know the th the 30 and the 60 and or 40 and 60 in the end it's it's a bit arbitrary when if you if you really take a step back the question is could you have still grown 32% if you had been hands off the same amount and just had the people working under you i you were in there so maybe you see it in a different way i i'm just curious I started rapid in 2001 we sold in 2017 and I would still go in the office pretty much every day, 2016, 2017. The reality is I was making work for myself in a lot of cases. I had such a great team. We had clear objectives and directions. And it was a failure on my part to not stop and step back and say, you know what I've accomplished in business, what I've accomplished, and what else do I want to be spending my time on it is really how old are you i'm 59 it's really hard once you get yeah it's really hard to once you're in that groove to stop and what and work could be one thing it could be you're a marathon runner and you're always going to put in the time to get in the miles there's also a lot of identity with particularly with work with what you do all these things it's what i talk to the younger entrepreneurs is as you're starting out what does success look like for you? If we're sitting down five years from now, what has had to happen for you to feel like you've been successful? And everybody has have, should have their own metrics, their own definition of what that success is. And it, and I would ask if they would say X amount of revenue and say, why? Why is that important? Do you feel that's how you were? You gave yourself a metric and now are you looking back and going, oh, that was arbitrary? The results were more confirmation of what we were doing it i really really enjoyed creating the company and doing something that had never been done before implementing ways of manufacturing parts that were totally different the 
team building software. We had six software developers on staff. You know, how many parts making companies have six software developers, let alone one? We created such amazing shop software, estimating software, software that integrated all the aspects of the business. And that was, it was really cool to see how we could become more and more efficient. We, we could turn a part around in 24 hours without a hiccup in thought, without doing anything special. So do you feel like at the time you were conscious of, it seems like now you really appreciate the journey and, and the journey, you understand that the journey was where it was at. At the time, did you go, this is the journey, I'm really enjoying this journey? Or were you, you kind of had like the vision of, I want to get it X and this is what I'm going for? It was the rush along the way. And it was really hard to sell the company. Had an offer, silly offer from a public company who could afford to pay what they did. And I had to really think about, is this, did I want to continue? Because where we were at Rapid, there was still- had you Had you had it on the market or did you just kind of no. get an offer? No, we didn't have it on the market. We had a partnership. We we developed a partnership with the with Proto Labs and- they did not have the turn sheet metal service. Okay. So it was somebody you knew you had a partnership with them. Yes. It's, and there was a lot of me thinking about my identity and I, I really, really enjoyed the company building process. I loved working with the people. We, we had such a great team at Rapid and I knew that that door was going to close if I sold the company. So it was a very conscious decision. And I said, there's other things I want to do in my life. Some of them, I don't even know what they are yet. However, I have. And how old were you when you sold it? 53. Wow. That's only 10 years older than me. So, you know, look, this is something I'm starting to, we're, we're in the baby stages of doing this. And, I, and I'm very into psychology of this kind of thing. The money came in and the money was just so attractive. Had there been no offer, you would you do you think you'd still be doing it now and and how do you think you'd be feeling and if you absolutely can't answer that hypothetical question it's okay i'm pretty sure i would still be doing it however my regret is that i know paperless parts would not have had the success that it has had we were involved in the prototype parts world and my viewpoint on manufacturing was from that perspective and what Jason and the team have done is taken and the background of paperless parts is. Yeah, we have to back up for one second now because everybody's going to be like, what's well, not everybody, but give me give me paperless parts in in a nutshell. It's related to the quoting. Yeah. So as part of our automation to run around quotes really fast at rapid. There, there were so many pieces internally um, that allowed us to do that. And then we also took it to the point where we created a plugin for SolidWorks that would instantly quote your sheet metal parts and accept an order. And at the end, I think it was something like 20% of our sheet metal revenue and maybe 20% of the parts, 10% of the dollars, real rough, came in automatically as orders from the SolidWorks app. It was, it was amazing. We were really, really good at estimating parts fast. And what we did is we interrogated the 3D model and pre-populated and used algorithms to take a lot of the work out 
of the process for the estimator. And, and there were a lot of other things where we extracted information from emails. It, it, we, bottom line, could get a lot more quotes out of every estimator and they could be turned around a lot faster. And in 2016, started talking with Jason. He brought on our CTO, Scott Sawyer, and we had the inklings of what paperless parts would become, which was based around the estimating tools that rapid. And as the sale started to take place in 2017, that software was locked up at rapid. So paperless parts set about to recreate an estimating tool that cloud-based that would be available for the masses. And Did you have we, to kind of work that out oh, like delicately about intellectual property, et cetera? It wasn't very delicate. There was, there was a lot of back and forth on stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. But the bottom... Because that was part of your secret sauce. Yes, but it was a small part. There's really the parts making that they were interested in. Uh, they weren't excited, though, about paperless parts starting. And that was a battle we I had to go through personally with, with Auto Labs. Paperless parts, though recreated an estimating tool from scratch, cloud-based, and we had some false starts. We we finally clicked, found our product fit, our basic product fit with the shops, and we're focused on providing estimating and communication tools now for the machining and sheet metal industries primarily. I think we've got over 500 shops using our software right now and quite a few large what we call enterprise shops and shops 50 over 50 million in revenue over 100 million in revenue Ooh, it's the core. so it seems like this journey you're all about the journey and i think you're it sounds like you're really happy about this journey but you think you'd still have been well what i would have done is i would have not allowed the team i would have probably meddled too much i, I wouldn't have delegated and i would have tried to have been too smart and no, I mean, had you stayed with the company longer? Well, that's what I mean. If I, if I still owned Rapid, then I would have pushed paperless parts to more serve when I saw the functionality of a company like Rapid needed, as opposed to the more general functionality of who our customer base is today. I, I would have been said, no, we don't. You don't want to do this. You want to do that. And and I'm so I'm glad I get, I'm glad I sold Rapid. It's allowed paperless parts to flourish. I think we are we're really helping American manufacturers, parts makers solve a problem that is is so hard for most shops, which is turning around quotes quickly and getting people who are less experienced able to contribute to the quoting process. And then we're also putting in some really cool communication tools and uh, some other stuff that a lot of value. Interesting. So it sounds like it's given you some new purpose. And it sounds like it was a bit, you know, it was a transition and it took a little soul searching to sell it. You know, I'm sure there was a number where if they offered you something paltry or that you was just okay, then you might not have accepted it. I don't know. Can you, it, it sounded like you, you just said, oh, they offered me a price that you couldn't refuse. But it also, it also had to do with where you were so 3D Systems at the time was buying the sterilophography service bureaus that were in the prototype world, both 3D printing and other processes that were run by shops. There, there were some crazy multiples that were being bought at. And so I put a number out to Proto Labs. Yeah. 
basically said, this is it and figure out how to justify it. Can you tell me what multiple it was? It ended up being probably roughly two and a half X sales and about 10 times EBITDA. 10 times EBITDA. Explain that, the EBITDA to people, what, you, what exactly you mean by that. Sure. So EBITDA is your earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So sort of non-cash flow items in a lot of cases. And it's a rough way of calculating how much money you're making in the company. And one of the things I was proud of, and that was we early on, we demonstrated we could make 20% plus EBITDA. And the only time that we didn't do that in the later years is when I sort of lost my way and I focused on revenue. And after that, we, I said I would rather not grow 20% EBITDA. So if you had $10 million in revenue, your EBITDA was $2 million. I'd rather not grow and keep the EBITDA there than to grow and have, say, a 15% or a 10% EBITDA. What I learned the hard way is profitability drives the growth. If you don't have the cash from the higher EBITDA, then your growth is going to stall. So they really go hand in hand. Maybe I didn't totally understand. You were saying you were growing super fast mm -hmm. and you decided to slow down your growth. No, I was trying to accelerate the. You were trying to get the EBITDA to, no, to I was, go up. I was trying to accelerate the revenue. I was focused on, solely on the revenue and incentivize people to make bad decisions to generate revenue uh, that wasn't necessarily profitable. Take jobs. Sounds like a lot of publicly traded companies. You know, they just. They want to show growth, so they build more stores and they, yeah. Yeah. you know. Learn, learn the hard way. Don't don't chase revenue. 10, 10 to 12 times. But the reason you guys, you sold for so much was because you had your own secret sauce. You had the software. You had you were doing something that nobody else was doing, category of one. We were the world's leader in turning around prototype sheet metal parts by far. There was no one close to us and. I believe Proto Labs looked at trying to create it from scratch in-house, and that was something they recognized would have been really, really hard to do, probably impossible. And one of the things with public companies, the there's a term called the TE ratio, basically the price, the, the earnings time, the price. They bought us at, let's say, 12 times EBITDA, and they were being traded at 30 times EBITDA. At least they, they were at a really high PE ratio. So by adding our revenue, even at a high multiple in our industry, the market cap for them went up because they now had all this extra revenue and profit. It was that valued much higher. As as Chris Voss would cringe at, it was a win-win. <laughs> <laughs> it really it really was. Really yeah. Yeah. I mean, just for people's reference, you know, when machining companies sell, it's generally from three to five, three to six. Once in a while, people come in and they say, I want seven or whatever. And you basically just tell them they're crazy unless they have a product, you know, or something like this. So I could see how that would be just incredibly attractive. On the next episode of Swarfcast. I love pricing. Pricing fascinates me. And I really encourage someone who has the power to 
change prices, controls pricing, and he's probably a shop owner. Do some experiments. If Maybe don't change your pricing wholesale. Maybe a new customer comes in. Raise your shop rate 25%. Try, try some stuff. See what happens. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com. Music